In October 2012, then Deputy Chair of the Labour Party, Tom Watson, stood up in the House of Commons and made this statement. I want to ensure that the Metropolitan Police secure the evidence, re-examine it and investigate clear intelligence suggesting a powerful paedophile network linked to Parliament and Number 10. That set the hair running, according to then DCI Paul Settle, on alleged VIP child sex abuse and resulted in his team receiving dozens and dozens of allegations from individuals and he met Tom Watson and Tom Watson became a crusader for alleged child sex abuse victims or survivors as he would often call them and he took up the case of a woman who became known as Jane who alleged that Leon had raped her in 1967 when he was a lawyer in London and there was an investigation launched in 2013 into that but Leon wasn't interviewed at that stage because Paul Settle realised pretty quickly I think you're aware there was nothing in this and this woman was a Labour activist she had a history of making false allegations delusional and there's no evidence to support her claims that Mr Watson took up her case and he, he intervened we now know he wrote to the DPP saying that her case hadn't been dealt with properly and urging action by the Met. I just wondered at what stage you and Leon became aware of this as an issue. What I can remember of that particular time was that Leon was rung on his mobile when he was in hospital. He had not been out of this intensive care for very long. He had to go back for another operation and he was rung in the hospital room by the Metropolitan Police, uh, I suppose, putting the allegation. He never told me exactly what they said. I wasn't there. Mm. And when he came out of hospital, the, the police had asked to interview him. They agreed that he would be interviewed at the offices of the solicitors. And that is what happened. Leon was given the, the allegation. He wrote, his, so to speak, his rebuttal of it, or he said in a, in a statement that the facts as presented were not right. If they wanted to, they could e easily verify them. The flat wasn't where she said it was. The flat wasn't on the floor, she said it was. The bathroom wasn't the sort of bathroom that she said it was. And so there were a number of things. And his means of identification for being a barrister did not exist. So there were a number of things that he knew very well. And he said, allegations without foundation. But he said, all of these things can be checked. You can check me where I was living. I will give you a good description of it, which he did. And then at the end of his statement, he said, I would like to tell you that I really am not very well. I've been in hospital. I've had, I don't know, hours and hours and hours of anaesthetic. You know, I'm not a well man. But on the other hand, I will certainly be interviewed. And that's what happened. That was in May 2014. That was in May 2014. So that was when the inquiry was reopened. Yeah. evidently after pressure from Tom Watson. As, I, mean, I, as, his, I, as his, I now know, I didn't know that. Yeah, his private letter mm. to the DPP, mm. Alison Saunders, ended up in the People newspaper and on the now disgraced website 
Exaro, which was peddling lies mm. about VIP abuse. Mm. So, I mean, it was virtually, I think, the next day after the article appeared in The People and on Exaro mm. about Tom Watson complaining that Leon had been treated leniently. Mm. And Jane, who I think he described as a credible survivor, uh, was being treated shabbily, that the Met rang Leon in bed. Yeah. I mean, if you can, just a bit more detail, how ill he was, because he was painfully thin, if I remember rightly, from pictures at the time. He was. He'd had an operation which had had difficult consequences, and he'd been the best part of three weeks to a month in ICU. And you know what that does to you? That completely destroys your muscles. You have no strength. And when he came out of hospital, you know, a month or two previously to all of that, that was the first time. And then he had more complications. I can't quite remember exactly what they were, but he was back in hospital, different hospital, for probably a period of two weeks, three weeks. And it was then. I mean, he was not well. And anyone who'd had that sort of medical treatment over a period of four or five months was absolutely not well. And he was rung in the hospital. He came out of hospital and then a week or so later, we was driven to the lawyer's office where the interview with two police officers took place. And I think I'm going to name them. Their names were Detective Superintendent David Gray and uh, DS James Townley. Mm. Um, according to my research, they turned up late and their tape recorder didn't work. I do know that. And the interview didn't last very long, did it? Through my research, I managed to get a transcript of it. And what was really odd was that they didn't ask him about the alleged incident. One question here from D.S. Townley. Have you ever lived in a flat which was in a basement or had railings in the bathroom window? Not very specific, that one. When you did go into a flat, did you lock the door? And uh, another interesting question from D.S. Townley. Did you socialise in Knightsbridge? Did you have any friends in Knightsbridge? Oh, yes, and this one was extraordinary. Have you ever owned horses? I see you laughing there. It would be funny, wouldn't it, if it wasn't so ridiculous? Because a cynic would say that they were going through the motions here, that a box could be ticked, that they've interviewed Lord Britain. And let's not forget, he was interviewed under caution, so it was a serious situation, potentially, how upset was he by that? Well, what I remember of that day was, firstly, he thought that they would ask some supplementary questions, which they never did. All those questions that you've asked, of course, the answer to that was no. You know, I don't, didn't live in a basement. I lived in a top-floor flat, and here is the address, and you can go and see it. No, the only lock I had to my door was a Yale lock, so that, you know, it shut behind you. No, no horses. So I think he came away from that interview as much as he could, saying, it's all over. You know, they were fairly polite to me, and they made me feel as if that was it. You know, they'd asked the questions they had to, and that was the end of it. I really did believe that. But it wasn't over, was it? Mm. And I mean, he wouldn't have known then. He only had eight months to live, and his name would not be cleared by the time he died in connection with that allegation. No which he 100% denied. Yeah. But it got worse, didn't it? Because in the summer, after that, frankly, farcical interview, that inquiry, 
then under the command of Deputy Assistant Commissioner Steve Rodhouse, who we'll discuss in more detail a bit later, came up with the idea to have an ID parade that your husband's picture, which was, you know, well-known, distinctive features, that the alleged victim should see his image from the 60s with other images. Can you talk us through that? Because I think you were approached, weren't you, to provide a picture? I was approached, I suppose, I suppose in the summer of that year to provide a picture of Leon in 1967. And I said, I haven't got one. I didn't know him then. But I said, he's a well-known face and he's hardly changed since he was 25 or 27 to now. There's very little change and therefore anyone who has a well-known face now and the face has not changed. I'm sorry, I can't help you. I don't have a photograph. There are no photographs that exist that I have. And I just, I put that out of my mind. I thought that would be the end of it. And then they came back and said that they were going to do an ID parade. In the very beginning, I thought they were going to ask him to do a you know, live ID parade. And I said, well, you can't do that. Well, firstly, he's not up to it. And secondly, his face is extraordinarily well known. It'll be on the internet from decade to decade. I mean, anyone who's been in public life has a well-known face. And his face was a particularly distinctive one. So I felt quite offended by the fact that you could even think of doing an ID parade for somebody who was a photograph you could easily check on. So that's not the purpose of an ID parade. The woman known as Jane, mm. I mean, we can't reveal who she really is for legal reasons, was shown several floating heads. Mm. And she asked to see number two and number four, who was Leon, again, according to a statement I've seen. And she correctly pointed out number four. She was then challenged on that, and she said, oh, yes, I, I had seen the, a picture of, of Lord Britain, ironically, in the Daily Mail recently, mm. although it wasn't the same photograph. So, I mean, that really undermines what was a flawed process already, it would seem, wouldn't it? Well, it would seem like that. I mean, it seems to me that... Well, it's like saying, let's have, I don't know, a pop star or a politician or a member of the royal family. Let's have them in for an ID parade. Mm and particularly a photograph one, all you have to do is to study all the photographs of the person that you've accused, and then you come up with it. Why would you not? Was he angry, do you think? He didn't know. I never told him about that. I mean, he was in and out of hospital by that time, and actually I, I decided that I would keep all that from him. It was distressing, and, and I just bore the burden of it myself. I would imagine that he was desperate for his name to be cleared, that waiting for a letter, maybe, from no, from Mr would, Rodhouse to I say, think, you're think, in the clear, there's nothing in this, but there was I nothing in the he, post, was I there? I think he believed, after the interview, that that was it, and sort of half put it out of his mind. I would ring the solicitors from time to time and say, where have you got to? Well, they'd say, we try to get some information out of the police, they won't give us any. I mean, that's that was that year. And then, I suppose, by the time... The ID parade came along. It must have been about August, September. And they talked to me about it, but I didn't talk to him about it. I just didn't think it was worth upsetting him even more. I think if he was waiting for a letter to come, he didn't talk about it, and he didn't talk about it to me. The Jane rape allegation, the inquiry codename was Operation Vincenti, was trundling along, nothing happening. Mm -hmm. The file as I recall, was being bounced from the Met to the CPS and back and forwards and that again. The CPS didn't want to know, but the Met didn't want to close it down. Though you were evidently 
terrified of Mr Watson and the political clout he had. So November 2014, Operation Midland is launched. Gold Commander Steve Rodhouse, his boss, Assistant Commissioner Cressida Dick. And for those who may not be so familiar with this, the alleged victim was known as Nick. He, like Jane, had close links to Exaro, the disgrace website, and he alleged that he had survived a Westminster paedophile gang in the 70s and 80s that had murdered three boys. And this resulted in an unprecedented uh, investigation by the Met, unprecedented in a number of ways, because one of Mr Rodhouse's officers, Detective Superintendent Kenny MacDonald, made the most extraordinary statement in December 2014 at the outset of the investigation, which suggested that Nick was telling the truth. Nick has been interviewed over a long period of time by experienced detectives from the Child Abuse Command, and he has also met investigator from the Murder Command. They and I believe what Nick to be saying is credible true. Now, you're a former magistrate, aren't you, and know what justice is all about, and that involves having a presumption of innocence and also a right to a fair trial. I just wonder, you know, that statement, looking back on it now, so that was at the start of a multi-million pound, 16-month investigation where your husband was implicated. What's your view on that? In retrospect, because at the time I was so preoccupied with what I was doing on a daily basis, getting on a tube, going up to the hospital, spending all day there, I was very preoccupied. But on the other hand, the whole of the investigation was essentially counterintuitive to the presumption of innocence. And that's what I felt very strongly about. And as a magistrate, it is indeed for the police to investigate cases and indeed for the Crown Prosecution Service to bring them to the attention of the magistrate. And I spent 24, 25 years on the bench, of course, not dealing with very serious crime, but we dealt with crime to which there was guilt and innocence. And you have to take the view and under our legal system that somebody is innocent until they're proved guilty. At the beginning of that investigation, to essentially say that they're true allegations, of course, takes away the presumption of innocence because it means that the police have not done what they should be doing, which is to look at the evidence on both sides. And there was no no evidence then that that's what they had done. Cresta Dick, who's now the commissioner, the boss of Scotland Yard, have subsequently said that Detective Superintendent MacDonald was pressured into saying credible true Repeatedly, when I've spoken to journalists who were there, mm-hmm. Harvey Proctor, I know he's done his own research, no one can back up that claim at all. It was volunteered out mm-hmm. repeatedly and a strategic decision was made to use that comments, it would seem, which is really worrying. Well, well it, it is worrying because, as I said, the system that we have is entirely based on the presumption of innocence. And it seemed to me that to start an investigation in such a high-profile way through the organs of the BBC and uh, anything that goes through the BBC is global. I mean, it instantly becomes a, a worldwide phenomenon. And uh, you know, it was the sort of thing that my daughter in Australia 
she would hear all of this. I mean, so the, the whole thing is very distressing. And at that, at that particular time, of course, names were not names. They were all there on the internet and everybody knew. And I suppose, if I were to be absolutely honest, a lot of that passed me by at the particular time because I was far too worried thinking about other things. And that was not part of my daily worry at the time. But you are aware that the BBC News made the allegations of mm. Nick headline news yeah, in their well, primetime bulletins, yeah. something which I know they mm. deeply regret now. You know, it's one thing for a tacky, tatty website like Exaro to be pumping out these lies on behalf of Nick and arguably Jane, but for the BBC to make it headline news, I mean, there are real lessons there about how a witch hunt evolves. I'm absolutely certain that they believed that this was, for them, a golden goose. Maybe they believed it was true, I just simply don't know, but it was a big scoop. And I'm sure that between broadcasters as between newspapers, there are as many rivalries and um, wishing to be ahead of somebody else. I mean, I think, you know, the BBC had their own issues because of their coverage, or non-coverage, shall we say, of the Jimmy Savile scandal. They didn't come out of it well with Lord McAlpine. And there's the small matter of invading the privacy of Sir Cliff Richard yeah. as well. You know, I imagine that um, the BBC newsroom were under pressure to land the big one. I'm uh, sure. I don't know. But I'm, it, it seems to me that it's perfectly possible. What we didn't know then was actually what exactly Nick was alleging. I should say for the record, when we reported what Kenny MacDonald said at the press conference, as extraordinary as it was, not making excuses, but you, for Scotland Yard press conference, a senior officer says, we believe this to be credible and true. You can't turn around straight away and say, oh, no, he's not. It's up to us to prove otherwise, which we'll come on to later. But as it turned out, Nick, who was, was entitled to anonymity at the time, mm. something which probably made it easier for him to cast aspersions on other people's reputations, he alleged that Liam was part of a sadistic child abuse and murder gang involving Sir Edward Heath. Mm. Harvey Proctor, the former Tory MP. Lord Bramall, the D-Day hero, former head of the armed forces, our greatest living military man at the time. Former heads of MI5 and MI6. So we didn't know that, that, or the world didn't know that, and certainly us journalists didn't know, because post the Leveson inquiry, it's a lot more difficult to get unofficial information. But he also claimed that his dog was kidnapped by a former head of the security services, that Lord Bramall attended a naked pool party with Jimmy Savile, that he was tortured with snakes and wasps by VIPs, and that the Labour MP... Greville Janner, later Lord Janner, abused him at the Tory private club, the Carlton Club. I mean, it's off the scale in terms of being incredible, isn't it? I would have thought it was utterly incredible for a variety of reasons. Those who were accused in their daily lives, because in fact, I think they were all accused when they were, so to speak, in office, is that that's not the way that the world works, uh, that A, people are very busy, and B, if you're head of the armed forces or if you're a senior politician. I mean, your day is taken up all day, every day, with things that you have to do. You didn't have time to do any of this stuff. And, of course, you may meet each other for formal meetings with other people present, but I always thought that it was an incredible story. And I don't think that any police officer ever asked 
either a senior military man or indeed a politician, whether these allegations could even begin to be anything other than fabricated, because they sounded so totally and utterly ludicrous in some ways, because it's not how the world works. Well, it defies common sense completely, and one of the simplest questions which seemingly they didn't address was, if Nick had witnessed all this, why hadn't he been killed himself? Because although we couldn't name him, this VIP abuse survivor of a murder gang who tortured victims could be found within a couple of clicks on the internet. Mm. He wasn't hiding the other side of the world. He was in Gloucester and hadn't changed his name. Mm. He was very easy to find. You know, if a conspiracy had really happened as described, you'd have thought he'd have been six feet under as well. But he wasn't. I never really thought very much in that respect. But it just seemed to me that reading the allegations, because of course I didn't know what they were until Harvey Proctor proclaimed them. None of us knew what they were. No, nobody knew. At least I didn't know. And so they didn't seem to be in any way credible to anyone who knows the lives of people who are, at the, in this particular case, at the top of their profession. At the time, they were top of their profession, because that's essentially when the allegations took place. But of course, I didn't know when the allegations were. I didn't know what they were. That piece of information was not afforded to me. We spoke earlier about Leon's security, Scotland Yard security and his Home Secretary. I mean, that would pale into significance to what Lord Bramwell had as he went up the ranks in the army, for example. Well, he would have had a very busy life and he would have had a lot of people around him. They weren't, of course, police officers. I mean, Leon would have had two special branch people. That's what a politician has in terms of protection. And Lord Bramwell would have been busy from the, the moment he got up to the moment he went to bed because he had all the official stuff that he had to do and everything else. I mean, he was, he was head of the armed forces. It's a very significant and senior job. The point is that he, again, would have been vetted to the highest level. Yeah, of course. The people around him would have been vetted to a highest level. The allegations that Nick made against Lord Bramall were during the Cold War. Mm. The Russians would have loved to have had intel like that on our most senior military figure. It was during the Falklands War too. And the Falklands War, yeah, exactly. Mm. So he was allegedly slipping off to abuse Nick Mm. with other distinguished military chiefs. Mm. Well, it defies any sort of belief, really. We're basically into the last two months of Leon's life, aren't Mm. we? And he hadn't been exonerated over the Jane rape allegations. Steve Rodhouse refused repeatedly to close Mm. that inquiry. Mm. And we had this other inquiry, Midland, being launched, which basically seemed to be running in parallel Mm -hmm. to Operation Vincenti. That last Christmas, what was Leon's health like? Presumably he was deteriorating quite rapidly, as people do in the last stages um, of cancer. Well, he was in hospital, he was weak... I was travelling there every day, usually by public transport, and I would spend a lot of the day there, and then I would go back absolutely exhausted. I didn't have any time to think about anything else. And then finally, he came out of hospital on, I think, about the 9th or 10th of January of uh, 2015, and then, you know, lasted not very long after that. Did you have any conversations at all with him about these allegations swirling around, or were you aware that he was aware of, of Operation I Midland? Think he was aware, but he didn't talk to me about it. 
he talked a little bit to my elder daughter about it, but she didn't tell me about this until quite a lot later on. Um, he didn't talk to me. He didn't. He, he just. He didn't. And in a funny way, I didn't talk to him because it's not what you do when somebody's very ill. What you're trying to do when somebody is very ill is that, you know, I spent a lot of time in the day trying to coax him to have something to eat. You know, you, you live a completely different life when you have somebody who's in hospital and is in hospital for a prolonged length of time and, of course, is probably deteriorating, although you don't know that. Your life is totally, totally different. It's like looking after an invalid at home. Your mind is taken up with the, the day's work about what you know, you've got your washing to do, how you're going to get there, what you're going to do, are you going to take some food, how you're going to look after yourself. And therefore, it, it may sound ridiculous, but you don't talk about those types of things mm -hmm. because you're talking about survival. May I ask you what he told your daughter? I'm not sure the exact words, and I'm not sure I would want it said on the record. Okay, okay. Because it was actually quite distressing. Sorry. Don't worry. So, I mean, she only told, she told me quite a bit afterwards. She didn't say so at the time. Because I think she didn't want to, and she didn't want perhaps to, to upset me. I mean, she came down. I think they may have been down that Christmas, my, my elder daughter and her husband and daughter. I think came for that Christmas, and so we sort of took it in turns to go and mm. see him. They were there, I think, for a bit of time, partly to be with me. Then, of course, we didn't quite know what the future held. And well, I think he also talked to Julia Neuberger. Yeah. Not so much about that, I think. I mean, what he said to her, he mentioned it, and he said, I can't do two things. I can't get better and fight these allegations. That's what he said to her, but he didn't yeah. say it to me. No. He wanted to protect you. But it, it, it would seem, I don't want to prolong your, mm. make this too difficult for you, but it's important the public know, I would argue, just how much hurt this caused. Oh, well, it certainly, it certainly caused, um, I mean, I think Julia Neuberger would say that she saw quite a bit of him for a variety of reasons. She almost became his rabbi, actually, in hospital, which I think was very comforting to him. But he, I mean, he couldn't even, I mean, I think she suggested that he might want to write a letter to me, but he couldn't do it. He said, he just, I can't do it. I mean, at court, when Beach, Carl Beach, aka Nick, was convicted, a victim impact statement was read out, and, yeah. and Baroness Neuberger said that the police witch, let's make that clear, had had a cruel effect on him. Yeah. He felt cut off from much of his business and social circle, he felt traduced. Yes, well, he did. And he felt very cut off, I think, from his business circle because he believed, well, I think probably he believed that they believed it and all of that. And, and you know, he, his friends still supported him, but I think he did feel very cut off. And there he was in hospital, alone, in a single room, brooding on all of this. But he didn't really want to spend, we, we didn't want to spend our time together, you know, having these sorts of discussions because it's too painful. He died six years ago, didn't he? January the 22nd, yeah. 2015. Yeah. I mean, he'd come home from hospital 
to die like yeah. like people do if they have well, the choice, don't I they? I think he knew he did, but I didn't know. I didn't realise that the what I thought to be months was going to be days. I just didn't. Mm. And indeed, those last few days, actually, were quite happy. Lots of people came to see him. Mm. He had a lot of visitors. He had a lot of visitors in hospital, actually. You showed me a card which he wrote from hospital mm. just before Christmas in 2014. Yeah. He wouldn't have known it then, obviously, nor you, but he had less than a month to live yeah. then. And he did. He, he made it very clear, his, his love for you. He did. Yes, it was, it was the last thing he ever wrote, actually. I think he was unable, really, to write anything from then onwards. Although, of course, he came home. But we weren't writing. We were merely talking as he, as he came home in the beginning of 2015, I mean, very shortly before he died. It came as a shock, although he was obviously very ill. It was nevertheless a shock when it happened. Death is always a shock. However ill somebody is, the actual moment of death, you can't ever predict or practically I couldn't and so I suppose that particular night before I wasn't expecting it and he died in the middle of the night and then of course by 10 11 o'clock in the morning the press were there and that was extremely distressing it is difficult enough to cope with a sudden death and the fact that you're numb when somebody dies it's not at all like on the telly then to have to deal with people shouting through the letterbox that particular day was not easy. It oh really my, did happen. It oh happened that day. Then my doctor came by and came in in order to give me the death certificate. So he passed away in the middle of the night. Yeah. So were you alone in the house? when? Uh, no. At that particular moment, I'd had someone who, when he came out of hospital, who was sleeping right at the top of the house, who was helping me oh. on what we didn't know was the last leg, but I had engaged her perhaps for a couple of months hoping that, of course, that Leon would get a little bit of better. He was a bit better, actually, coming out of hospital. He was so thrilled to get out of hospital yeah. and back to his own familiar surroundings. And I think you want to clarify, don't you, that he, he wasn't giving up when he was in hospital. He wanted to live, despite all this noise going on in the background, these allegations, these wild allegations being made, and the witch hunt, which undoubtedly was going on, that he wanted to live. I suppose a couple of months... Before that, he was sort of in and out of hospital pretty much on a fortnightly or weekly basis. And he knew about the allegations. And he said to me very clearly, and he said to my daughter, my conscience is clear. And then he really said to my daughter, why would I bother worrying myself about all of this when my conscience is clear? Because all I want to do, however long I've got left and I want to try and get better, is to spend the time in a pleasant way with myself in hospital, you know, talking to him, reading him from the paper, holding his hand, and all of that. Why would I beat myself up about something I know is not true? I'm Stephen Wright, and you've been listening to a Mail Plus True Crime Special, a series of interviews with Lady Britain, widow of the former Home Secretary, Leon Britton. 